0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Theodisc, a place for discussing theology and growing in our faith. Today I'm joined by Dr. Steve Watts. Steve received his PhD in Medieval History at the University of St. Andrews and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto. He graduated from Regent in 2010 with an MCS in Interdisciplinary Studies and now he is Assistant Professor of History and Dean of the Chapel at Crandall University, Moncton, and is the Primary History Distance Education Instructor for Regent College, Vancouver. Steve also teaches Church History and Spirituality at WTC. In our conversation, Steve and I explored the value of humility when evaluating the history of those who've gone before us in the faith and how being aware of our own cultural biases can keep us from making sweeping generalizations about the past. Get ready for a historical theological deep dive. And if you'd like to send us any feedback, then email podcast at wtctheology.org.uk. Enjoy. Steve Watts, it's great to have you on the Theodisc Podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So I thought we'd just begin by talking a little bit about your PhDs in Medieval History um, at WTC. Right. You, you teach the history of Christian spirituality. Could you just tell us a little bit about kind of what that entails and what your expertise is? So at uh, WTC, right, I've got the history of Christian spirituality, and I also teach a class of classics of
1: early Christian literature. And uh, both, of the, both of those courses come out of a passion for sharing... A great historical legacy of our faith, the way that God works uh, amongst the faithful, and um, just the great many uh, lessons and examples that we can draw from, that we can learn from. And uh, yeah, I mean, that stems from my interests in church history um, academically, and uh, specifically my PhD at St. Andrews was looking at uh, early 13th century—that's early 1200s—well, um, medieval religious culture and and seeing the really dynamic way that they sought to fulfill uh, the obligations of the gospel and sought to follow Jesus in ways that, to be honest, prior to um, you know getting into my graduate and then um, into my doctoral studies, I just didn't know existed. And so I suppose that part of what I love doing at WTC and other places is to share a bit, about, a bit of that excitement, um, a bit of that journey where I can kind of hopefully encourage other people also to realize that there's so much there to explore, so much there to learn, so much there to take inspiration from.
0: Brilliant. I think certainly that's been my experience even as a, as a student at WTC is this kind of discovery of what's come before. Um mm. and the riches yeah. that are that are there, um and we will we're gonna kind of come at this conversation from a perspective of um examining the posture that we take when we look back his- historically at different figures and events, important events, and how sometimes we we might um need to readjust our judgment of those periods and our assessment of those. But before we get into that conversation, I would want to just ask you a few questions just so we can get to know you a little bit. Um, All of our first time time guests are put through this ringer. So um, we're just talking here about things that you return to, things that are comforts for you, things that are kind of constants um, in your life. So the first one is, what's a book that you return to? Man,
1: that's a very good question. Uh, I, the first thing that comes to mind, actually, maybe doesn't sound especially comforting, uh, but it is something that I do return to in part because I think it re-energizes the way that I think, it challenges the way that I think. And uh, and that is the fiction of one of the Inklings, Charles Williams, not C.S. Lewis, not Tolkien, both of whom are obviously are wonderful authors, but Charles Williams, the way in which he sees the world the way in which he kind of imagines uh, the interactions between you know the material and the spirit worlds and the way in which uh, we can kind of participate in something much more profound even among the seemingly mundane so I think that's something that I would go to I think perhaps not necessarily. As a source of comfort as a way of um re-energizing reframing the way i'm i'm seeing the world seeing the, you know the, the things that i do the, in the day to day
0: brilliant and what's a kind of food or a meal that you might return to
1: gosh well, I mean, I you have to start thinking about your mother's cooking, really. I mean, by your mother's, I think mine rather than yours. <laughs> I'm sure your mother is a wonderful cook. Uh, but for me, uh, I still have such fond memories of my mother's lasagna, uh, uh, which I just would ate, eat plates and plates uh, of lasagna when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And so I think that that... Uh, even if I don't get access to that all that much these days just even the thought of it uh, brings me uh, uh, brings me to my happy place
0: you've not gotten a recipe so you can you can make it yourself now
1: no no I have a feeling that might spoil it
0: <laughs> yeah it's a special mother's touch yeah what about what about a place that you return to
1: um gosh I love being by the water I love being by the beach uh We are relatively close to the beach where I am in uh, Moncton, New Brunswick, where I work at Crandall University. And uh, so I guess 20 minutes or so I can get out to the beach. But um, honestly, going back to uh, the place where I did my graduate and doctoral studies at St. Andrews, um, and by virtue of being able to come back to the UK, whether at WTC or what have you, I do try and make it up there at least once a year um, under non-COVID restrictions. And just being able to walk along, you know, East Sands, West Sands, Castle Sands, uh, is just really good food for my soul.
0: That's great. Yeah, the idea of the Scottish beach is somewhat different to the mm. idea of <laughs> beaches in other places.
1: That's right, and I'm not, and I'm not just saying that to get me good graces, Kenny. It's uh, <laughs> it comes from the heart. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, let's dive into the conversation we're going to have today about how our knowledge of history can affect sometimes our perspective on it. and Yeah. How would you assess the current situation, at least as we're talking about the Western Evangelical Church, the situation in regards to our knowledge of, of church history?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I wish I could say it was in a healthy place, but I, I tend to think it isn't. Uh, I think that most Christians, so, you know, that I've encountered, though deeply faithful. Um, yeah, they they have very little memory of the past. They have very little memory, really, even you know, going back for their parents' generation. To be honest, and uh, I should really emphasize here that this isn't something that I would hold anybody at fault for. I mean, I come from a Pentecostal tradition originally, and um, the Pentecostal way of doing history is. You have the first century, and you have the Jerusalem Church, and then things all kind of go wrong after that. Uh, and then, wonderfully, in the early 20th century, you have Azusa Street and charismatic, you know, Pentecostal um, revival and people speaking in tongues, which, of course, as everybody knows, is the evidence of salvation. <laughs> and uh, that's the way you do history, right? And then you have this whole kind of almost 2,000 years, or at least 900 years, that falls between that. Um which, you know, God apparently kind of just took his hands off the wheel for a while. So it's quite interesting theology. But so I I completely sympathize um, with people who have a limited knowledge of church history. It's not typically something that um, especially evangelical churches have a lot of time for. Uh, But I would add that I don't think that that's just necessarily a Christian phenomenon. I think that that's something that we have... um, inherited from our wider culture. And what I mean by that is that we are in the midst of the digital revolution, where the major drivers of culture are digital, are software-based, are tech-based, software tech you know, all the news about things like Twitter, for example, Elon Musk, uh, Instagram, you know, Meta, all of these, these different factors, how online we all are, And we need to think about the implicit judgment or or implicit values, value systems. Uh, They're inherent, right? They're implicit within uh, these companies, within this mindset, which is that the new is better. The past is inherently worse. And uh, underwriting all of that is this notion, if we just work harder, if we use our brains a bit more effectively, we are going to improve. We are going to (laughs) evolve. We are going to evolve. And whether we are explicit about it um, or not, uh, the implication, the very strong implication, is that what has come before is either something we don't really need to know about uh, or is something that's inherently bad, something that's that we should either just discard or in some cases renounce. And so I think that in many respects, um, evangelical culture has been informed by these larger waves or um, maybe not waves, should I say, this tide within, uh, you know, the the wider culture um, that we find ourselves in. So again, I'm not blaming anybody, um, but I think it's important for us to identify um, the setting that we find ourselves in and uh, the larger culture that seems to inform that setting.
0: Yeah. And, and it's complex in some ways. I think we are in a, in a cultural moment of kind of reassessment of some of the historical narratives that we've understood. And, um, you know, in, in many ways, that's a that's a fruitful exercise um, to, to think rightly about things. But, but you're right, there is this temptation towards almost dismissing or discarding everything um, about the past. And I think in, in a, a, a religious or particularly a Christian context, Certainly my experience has been that actually um, uh, not engaging with church history has seen to be almost a virtuous shedding of something that's a stale and deathly expression of the faith. Have you kind of come across that?
1: Yes, I have, though I actually think that that's changing. And I've certainly s- seen that changing at WTC. I've seen that changing... Uh, in the teaching I've been doing at Regent College in Vancouver, where I'm the distance ed instructor for their core history courses and actually designing a course for them um, for January on the medieval church in Francis. So I actually have found that there's, in some respects, a greater hunger uh, in some pockets. But um, I think more generally, if I'm thinking back to maybe certain pastors or certain environments that I've, grown up in that what limited knowledge people have of the past is typically quite negative. And there's a kind of rhetorical contrast involved, which is what happened in the past. The little that I know, I know that it's bad and thank goodness, thank God perhaps uh, that I'm not like that. And And I do want to get back to the observation that you made about our particular historical moment. And one thinks, you know, for instance, of the statues coming down or, um, particularly of those people who are seen to be complicit with the transatlantic slave trade, or even closer to home from a Canadian point of view, thinking about people who are complicit with the horrors that occurred within the residential school system, for example. I mean, there are others besides. And I think there's an element of that, of course, which is incredibly helpful, not least for the people who have really suffered as a result of um, some of those injustices. Um, I suppose the one, qualification that I would um, add to that is that I am not quite sure that even as there is a somewhat of an investigation into the past I my experience is that itself has not been very rigorous Um, and which is to say that yes uh, let, let me put it this way My sense by, you know, reading the news, reading articles, talking to people, is that a number of the statues that have been up in public places that people actually didn't know very much about. They typically didn't think about it one way or another. And that's not just people who are Caucasian. It's people of color, too. And what's happened is that people have pointed out who these people are, uh, you know, who these statues represent. And people go, well, of course, this is not something that we want it is striking me that there's an irony there is that that it comes from a place of ignorance and then you get a little bit of information about who they are and then you get rid of that past and so it, it doesn't end up really becoming a um, uh, an opportunity to learn i don't think and in many respects you lose that opportunity to think more carefully and deeply about the complexity Uh, And that's not to excuse the behavior of the past, but think about the complexity of um, what was going on back then. But also you lose the opportunity. And I think this is something that we're going to get to to then reflect more critically about our own present moment. And perhaps the ways in which we can be complicit in things like slavery, because even though transatlantic uh, slave trade is um, is no longer in existence, uh, human trafficking most certainly is. Uh, And indeed, you know, the, the, you know, kind of systemic economic justice injustices still are present. And so I think that, you know, we need to be careful, uh, and hopefully we'll get into this in greater detail in our conversation, but we do need to be careful that when we are actually engaging in the historical past, we do so in a way that is, that is thoughtful, that it's engaging in a way that actually, that does, on one hand, absolutely shine a light on prior Injustice, but doesn't do so in a way that actually um, precludes opportunity to truly learn from it and indeed kind of shine a light on, on uh, injustices in our own injustices rather in our own uh, present time in our own particular circumstances.
0: Yeah, our present is the history of the future, which sounds like a complex statement. But yeah, someday someone is going to be looking back at our time,
1: oh, absolutely, yeah.
0: And it's and it's it's interesting. If we think about, it, particularly in a church history or theological sense, what little we do know sometimes about the history of the church can lead us into this uh, desire to disassociate ourselves from troubling incidences that we hear about uh, or troubling theology. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we can kind of get into this discussion about how do we have a healthy perspective while maintaining a posture of humility that you've already spoken about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. i, I just reflecting even on conversations that I've had with students at WTC over the years, and some of whom, you know, and, and this is almost a direct quote, had been raised or grown up in a Christian environment or... um or even in a, in a non Christian environment, with this deep rooted sense that they must live um, in shame or live ashamed of their Christian past. That their Christian past is inherently something that needs to be apologized for or repented of or somehow um, cast off. And um, I think that that gets reinforced, for example, when people might bring up something like the Crusades or the Inquisition, or perhaps more immediately, the legacy of missionary activity in the 19th century. Uh, And I think that for, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what it's like in the UK, but certainly in Canada, uh, Christian activity of any stripes within, of any stripe within the public sphere historically, has always been treated as something that's we just don't want to do again, you know, there's all kinds of aspersions cast upon it. Um and so, I mean, I I understand. I understand why people would want to to will either ignore that past or apologize for that past or try to distinguish themselves or disassociate themselves from that past. I totally understand it. Uh now my response to that in general terms is twofold outside of sympathizing uh the first is often that what you think you're apologizing for um or these particular things within our past which are perhaps uncomfortable or, or problematic often comes from a place of quite frankly ignorance you know which is, and, I, and i'm trying to not say that too negatively but it's often that we just don't know very much about what we're talking about we they They stand for something, they signify something, but as it turns out, the people who might even bring them up as a kind of an example of the abuse of Christianity, I mean, those people probably have very little idea about what they're talking about, and the Christians who are apologizing for them often don't know very much about what they're talking about, and it doesn't mean to say that there aren't things within our past that are worth repenting over, but what people will discover if they start doing the work is actually, again, that these Things like even the Inquisition or various Inquisitions or indeed the Crusades, when you actually get into the scholarship, and I'm saying of non-Christian scholarship, you recognize that things are not nearly as black and white, that they um, often arise out of historical circumstances that are quite foreign to us, um, that they arise within within societies and cultures that have very different value systems uh, than us. And at a certain point, we then need to be really careful that we are not holding them um, uh, to a set of value systems which are entirely foreign to them, right? Which is quite unjust. Uh, in fact, if you're not careful, and I should probably I use this language guardedly, but we, if we're not careful, we can kind of colonize our past, uh, imposing our sets of values upon the past without actually bothering to understand who they are, the, the actors within uh, the past, you know, what motivated them and the circumstances that they find themselves in. Um, so that's one, one response. The second one is, I think, um, one that I think most Christians could probably identify with quite easily without getting to the historical weeds is to remember our scriptures. Remember, especially the Jewish scriptures, remember the patriarchs. How many of these of these patriarchs, right, of our Abrahams, our Isaacs, our Josephs, why have you, Jacobs, how many of those are going to escape this kind of historical cancellation, if we think about it, right? They're all problematic, aren't they? And yet, right, they are in our scriptures, and yet they are there as testaments to God's ongoing faithfulness. And sometimes they do well, sometimes they do horrifically badly, of course, David being kind of a classic example, Um of a real kind of mixed bag, and yet they're part of our story. And I think we need to be really careful about doing something, uh, perhaps as a way of maybe sanitizing the Christian witness uh, that God himself did not choose to do when telling the story, our story of our salvation. And I think we really need to take that seriously. Don't sanitize what God himself has not sanitized. Now, let, let's give a, you know, because I'm a historian, let me give you an example of something that I think of, of a number. Um, of uh, historical instances or historical persons uh, that I think that people get in the habit of uh, apologizing for, or or are kind of conditioned to think badly of, um, often without kind of further exploration into who and the what and the why and all those kind of wonderful questions that historians are in the habit or should be in the habit of asking. Uh, And for me, one of my favorites is Constantine, right? This is the uh, emperor who uh, converted, in one way or another, Christianity into a vision and then a victory uh, against all odds in 312 uh, AD. Um, And I have found, speaking of social media and all its wonders, I have found a tendency for um, certain North American theologians or popular pastors to look at this or communicate this to their many followers as being, um, you know, this is being almost kind of a, the second fall, right, of, of man, right? You have Adam and Eve, and then you have, oh no, Constantine, and here we've come this unholy marriage between church and state. Yeah. And often what they're doing is they're trying to communicate this as a way of trying to explain why they don't like Trump, <laughs> <laughs> why they don't like Republican Party's alignment, right? uh, with the religious right or with evangelical conservatives. And you see all kinds of things, especially with the, you know, elections, midterm elections or, you know, presidential elections coming up later on, you know, just this, um, you know, critiques, Christian nationalism and these kinds of things. And, and so they yeah, identify, you know, Constantine is, this is the reason. Okay. And so Constantine bad guy, you know, don't want to have, don't know what happened there. I don't even doubt legitimacy of his conversion, but, you know, that's the kind of beginning of the end with this kind of a, the rise of Christendom. Now, quite frankly, as a historian, I think that narrative is rubbish. Why do I think it's rubbish? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, the methodology is wrong. You shouldn't be using the past, especially the past that's 1700 years old, to justify your political or even theological views in the present. That's 1700 years. That's an enormous amount of time, right? To say that one thing causes something, you know, 1700 years ago now causes something in your present um, uh, is methodology, is, you know, bankrupt methodologically, right? I mean, it's it's a crazy jump. Secondly, it misunderstands uh, the situation of Christians on the very eve of Constantine's conversion. And this is something that I try and communicate to WTC students. You need to imagine, uh, you need to try and put yourselves in an environment, especially in the East, which is at that stage in the early 300s, where Christianity is uh, um, is it's at its perhaps say most sophisticated, certainly most numerous within the Roman Empire. When I say the East here, I mean, present-day Greece or present-day Turkey, especially Mm -hmm. on the coasts, um, uh, that right before the point, or pretty much right before the point of Constantine's conversion and his victory, they are undergoing the greatest persecution the church has ever experienced. And, you know, even at a very conservative estimate, we're thinking of a number of thousands Christians, um, leaders of the church who are getting killed, some of them burned alive. Really, really horrible. This is called the Great Persecution under Diocletian, under Galerius in the early 300s. The idea, the very concept um, that somehow this empire that's trying to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth can, in a moment, it seems, turn to the one that they had crucified centuries earlier is astonishing. And not only astonishing, but can be hardly be interpreted as anything but God, God's kind of great providential saving work, right? That's the first thing. We really mm-hmm. need to put ourselves in this situation, whatever the legacy might end up being down the way, okay? Yep. That we really need to think that this is a church that just feels like literally all hell is breaking loose. And then how is it that against all odds, this emperor in the West or this, this acclaimed emperor in the West, Constantine, sees a vision that signifies, that is interpreted to him as being Christ and kind of leads him into this victory. How is this, how can this be interpreted as anything else by contemporaries as being a great work of God, right? Saving us, right. As the, uh, being the dawn just at the darkest point of night. Okay. So that's a, that's a way of thinking about the circumstances. Then what about about the setting? Then what about Constantine himself? Well, the evidence of Constantine, uh, what we can gather from someone like Constantine is that he seems to have one hand kind of understood a bit more about what Christianity is as he went along and that you can see a kind of progressive um, kind of development, perhaps even evolution with respect to how kind of, uh, candid he was willing to make or even exclusive, I suppose you'd say, he was willing to make his Christian claims appear. Um, but his, his particular perspective his particular strategy was never to make Christianity the official religion. That was certainly not the case. And in fact, that was a development that happened generations afterwards. And not only that, but his point was to try and um, <laughs> was actually to try and uh, be as, shall we say, ecumenical as possible with various um, religious uh Various religious groups, shall we say, broadly speaking, within the empire. And why was that? Because the army was largely pagan, and so was the very wealthy aristocracy. And so even as he aligned himself with Christianity, which was still at that stage a relatively small percentage of the population, he was having to learn to negotiate, which is actually a place that most people in Christian authority find themselves, especially in late antiquity and then into the Middle Ages. And what we end up finding is not only is he trying to be relatively ecumenical, but he is also trying to ensure that the church that he is trying to patronize, or at least trying to encourage themselves, um, develop some kind of coherent uh, unity, but also um, that he is attempting to try and um, develop lines of communication with the churches such as they are growing. And so what we end up discovering, at least, and this is, um, I'm representing here, the kind of general uh, his, the general historical consensus here by, you know, scholars in the field, is that you don't get a kind of top-down, the state telling the church what to do. On the other hand, uh, um, by contrast, actually, what you find is increasingly, you're finding cre- um, Christian emperors who are going to bishops to try and get a sense of what the Christian people want. So to put it in the words of the great uh, uh, historian of the period, Peter Brown, this is emperors who are finding themselves leading by the rear or leading from the rear, which is to say they are leaning on the bishops to tell them what the, the church population would like to see happen, right? What is important to them? So again, rather than it being top down, what you're finding is that Christian emperors are often following the lead of bishops and their constituents, right? And so, I mean, look, there's a lot more to unpack there, but already I hope you're getting a sense that there's this kind of the notion of an unholy relationship between church and state, particularly one which, you know, the... The emperor becomes Christian, and therefore, right, you know, the church feels like it needs to fall in line, or therefore becomes corrupted by imperial authority. Well, in many respects, the the um, the opposite is true. They end up finding the emperor kind of following the lead of the bishops, and the emperors also making sure that they are um, kind of having to negotiate quite carefully, or or to try and traverse the political and and quite. Um, uh, mixed and varied religious landscape that they have to kind of watch their step there and that they're quite uh, like Constantine and others after him that they, yeah, they do have to watch their steps. They need to be aware of what they're doing and they need to make sure that they're talking to people who are really in the know, Um, which quite frankly sounds a lot more like what politics actually looks like rather than what we might imagine uh, occurring, you know, 1700 years ago. So I mean, there's lots more that I could say. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I think that's probably enough in terms of, kind of complicating the narrative to the moment. And I hope Kenny that you're able to follow that. I'm not sure.
0: No, no, I am. And it's it, and it is it's interesting because as you as you talk and, and unpack even more, you do get this complex interweb of relationships that are going on. Yeah. I loved how you kind of connected that earlier on to our view of the scriptures as well, because sometimes I think we feel like we have this overbearing need to have the heroes and the villains. I think sometimes we read the scriptures that way. And actually, if you close read them, you get a much more complex picture of humanity trying to follow God and God trying to woo humanity. Perhaps our view of history needs to shift that way as well. We were less about trying to... uh, identify the heroes and villains and more looking at the perspective of each situation the complexities of what's going on
1: yeah and and seeking you know to align ourselves with the heroes which is kind of implicitly what happens and yeah i mean i'm just struck you know even as you were talking there even with respect to the new testament right and you know you have peter right Mm -hmm. the rock upon whom jesus builds his church and you know is there a more complicated problematic and at times pathetic figure in all the New Testament, right? I mean, we really need to take that seriously. Yeah. And not least because, you know, as tradition holds it, that Peter's the authority behind the Gospel of Mark, the apostolic authority on the Gospel of Mark. And Peter does not come out well in the Gospel of Mark. No. And that's got to be intentional, right? Where Peter's not trying to, again, sanitize his past, right? Right. It's almost like the embarrassment. I mean, same thing with Paul. Paul's Mm -hmm. the same way. Mm -hmm. We really need to take this stuff seriously. They are not sanitizing their past. And in many respects, actually, they will emphasize the ways they have gotten things wrong as a way of articulating further just how important God's work is, not just going forward, but through that past. And you'll, um, I think of Augustine, similar, his confessions, right? Incredible work. This is Augustine, right? And he's writing at the end of the 4th century into the early 5th, right? So late 300s, early 400s. And this is a leading light of, you know, Western theology, writing in North Africa. And he writes, you know, he is someone who is, reaches the very top of his professional life before, prior to come, becoming a, uh, a Christian, professor of rhetoric in Milan, like really kind of climbed the very top realized that it wasn't all it cracked up to be. He was still restless had not yet find, found the Lord properly in, in whom he would find his rest. And he comes back to North Africa. He becomes a pastor and he writes his confessions, and a confession of faith, but it's also a confession of sin. And if you read through, especially those early books, the confessions, it's all about how he constantly got things wrong. And it's not because he saw himself as the hero of the story. It's because God was the hero of the story. And all the ways that he got things wrong in the past was an illustration that yet God is faithful, yet God is gracious. And and these lessons that he learned, even his fallibility, were just that. They were things that could be learned and things that he could teach others, that they could learn from his experience. Not because he was great, but because God was, and God was greater. I think this is really powerful, that we do not teach the history in such a way that's sanitized or to make an argument for one denomination over another, which can, which has traditionally happened, especially in a de- denominational framework. But we, um, we see that in the past, there is that great learning opportunity in both respects, which is, is a, it, it is something that we can be inspired by, but as we can also learn from with respect to the ways that we don't want to go, you know, the kinds of things that we don't want to repeat, but I think the beauty of it, especially within the Christian, with that kind of truly faithful legacy of certain people that I've talked about there, is that often what can be most inspiring is learning uh, from their mistakes, right? Not just that we can repent about it, but actually go, nevertheless, God was faithful, and nevertheless, God still worked from them, and actually part of the power of our testimony is to talk about the ways in which we are broken and yet God has saved us and even use that brokenness and that weakness for his glory.
0: Yeah. Well, as we kind of wrap up the conversation here, maybe we can just finish by talking a little bit about if we take this seriously, Yeah. this engagement with with the story of our Christian past, how can that provide opportunities for us to become more self-aware? Yeah. To maybe lead us into those places of repentance and actually to become more effective witnesses in the world in which we live?
1: So one of the things that I try and teach to my students, what I try and encourage them, is that to learn about the past well is about asking really good questions, not jumping to conclusions, not assuming you already know what's going on. Ask really good questions and then listen really carefully. And why is that important? Well, it's important because in all ways of life, if you want to learn about anybody, right? So much of it is to ask good questions. So much of it is to really listen, not to jump to conclusions. Uh, It's especially true when we're talking to somebody from a different culture, with a different value system, right? We're not just going to jump to conclusions about somebody from a different ethnicity, right? I hope we don't. Mm -hmm. We want to ask good questions. We want to learn about what motivates them. We want to learn about their values, about their histories, right? This is the way we genuinely get to know who they are. And then, of course, we listen really carefully. And so we do this with the past, right? We don't assume otherwise. And that's the way that we learn, right? We try and understand motivations, complexities, not just so they stay complex, but we can actually develop a real appreciation for what's going on. Now, that shouldn't lead us, then, to a kind of live and let live, you know, um, kind of perspective, one where we don't come to a kind of judgment. Mm-hmm. What ends up meaning actually is when we do come to evaluate it, and I sincerely believe that we ought to have some kind of evaluation, even as we evaluate other people, right? Is this person honest, or is this person to be faithful? Is this person someone that shares the same values as me? We do it in such a way, though, that really um that takes seriously their integrity as people made in God's image, right? That we have done the work to understand them, which then means that even our disagreements are then actually deeply informed uh, agreements that take seriously their integrity as images of God. And that involves, right, humility. That involves not putting myself first. That means not uh, jumping, you know, that's not a rush of judgment, or that's not just looking at them or asking questions in a way that validates my own particular value systems or the things are important to me, okay? Validates what it means for me to be a Canadian, or indeed even a Christian, or indeed a charismatic evangelical, or what have you, okay? It involves a level of uh, humility. Now, that um, humility, that level of self-sacrifice, that practice of um, of asking questions of the past, and of listening carefully, I believe uh, then is really, really helpful for us in the present which is getting towards uh, getting to answering the question that you asked. Because I think that when you start asking good questions of the past and listening carefully, you see the ways in which, you know, Christians, for instance, in the past, in church history, you can see how they are informed by the historical circumstances. You can see the way they're informed by their social horizons. You can see the way that they are informed uh, by the cultures uh, in which they participate. And when you start doing that, when you get in the habit of doing that and seeing the way that these various conditions inform their faith and see the ways in which their faith then tries to inform the environment around them, you start getting the habit of mind, you start creating the kind of critical distance to go, hold on, hang on, what are the things in my life that are informing my faith?
0: Yeah.
1: What are the kinds of What are the elements within my culture and my society um, that are, to quote a a beloved professor, old professor of mine, Bruce Highmarsh. He says that are written in letters too big to read, which is to say, what are the things in our society that so deeply inform us, that are written so big that we would never think to articulate it? And it's not actually until somebody comes from a different culture that goes, hang on, why do you do this? Or until we go to a different culture and see them do something differently, that we go, oh, wait a second, why do we do this? Why does our Christian practice look this way? Why do I, we read our scriptures this way and not another way? Why do we spiritualize this bit and not another bit, right? Why have we gotten to these habits of thought, these habits of mind, when other people don't do it this way? What does that then kind of... Promote in us or provoke in us, and I and I do hope it it raises the sensitivity to actually, rather than just criticizing you know, what people called for crusades and what was a heavily militarized society where being a knight was a vocation, a legitimate vocation within the Middle Ages, right? Rather than kind of critiquing this apparent you know unity of church and state, whether it's you know in medieval Christendom or whatever Constantine's going on about, we start going well, hold on. How do our notions about political life inform the way that we approach who God is? How has, you know, our particular secular worldview interiorized, you know, our, you know, especially British sensibilities about the relationship between Christianity and public life, right? Right. How much have we kind of um, implicitly taken as fact or as a truth that we really need to keep our Christianity in a box and never let it come out in the House of Commons, you know? How have we somehow internalized that? Despite the fact that if you look to the early 19th century, the amazing things that British evangelicals got accomplished within political life in the early 19th century was precisely because Wilberforce was encouraged by Newton to, you know, you God has put you where he, he's put you. You need to be faithful to him in political life. Same thing with Lord Sharsby. Being a Christian doesn't mean then kind of getting in your holy huddle or try not to embarrass yourself in public life. It means actually do get embarrassed. Do be faithful to God's, Do be faithful to God's call. But somehow or another, we've internalized this sense that You know, whatever you do, don't bring up the faith in public life. Whatever you do, don't bring up the faith within political life. And unfortunately, what you end up doing is you end up kind of getting to something like you're finding in the States, where often faith is now kind of being communicated in the public sphere in a way that's really unhealthy. So anyways, it it creates these kinds of troubles. But I'm getting on a tangent. But the, the gist of it is, coming back to your initial question, by looking at the past, We get a sense, we can build a kind of critical distance where we can look at our present and go, hold on, how is our, how are the larger conditions with our culture informing our faith? And now with that critical distance, how can we then approach that culture in a way that's active, that's proactive, that's entrepreneurial even, where we don't We recognize that we're no longer kind of passively conforming to the world, but we're we're, we're actively seeking to change it. And I think one of the things that's really encouraging about learning about the faith or the the faith has been practiced down through the ages that we can see people doing that kind of work where they recognize the larger forces within their culture and are able to speak into it powerfully because they're no longer just passively going along with the status quo, but they're seeking to change things. Um, and kind of bringing the whole thing, whole circle, um, is that in addition to kind of an encouragement, I think that puts us in a in a really healthy place, which is one, um, you know, much like Peter finds himself, much like Paul finds himself, much like Augustine uh, finds himself, as a place of humility. That even as we are seeking to change, you know, our or write even write history, recognize actually we are not the ones who are doing the writing. This is God's work and that we it's important for us to see ourselves as being useful, but also as being fallible. We're not going to get it right, just as other people haven't got it right. And often indeed that God is going to do amazing things, perhaps even more out of our weaknesses than our strengths. And I think as long as we kind of recognize that um that the way that God has chosen to work through us in, in, in our past is through the is is through humility, through our brokenness. I think. Perhaps that might even be an encouragement to people or or offer hope to people because rather than try to sanitize themselves in the present or sanitize their past, they are able to see themselves as actually being vessels, albeit broken, but vessels for God's use that we can uh, transform according to his grace.
0: That's great. Yeah. Each of us has our own problematic personal histories in which God has been faithful and has been at work. I love that, Steve.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective today and giving us lots to really consider. I think as individuals and, um, and as students, how we can better engage with church history. I do hope in the future we'll get a chance again to talk and just kind of learn from your perspective. And um, But it's been a real treat um a rich conversation and thank you for being with us.
1: Yes, of course. Yeah, lovely to chat with you, Kenny. Cheers, Steve. Yeah, bye.
2: Well, thank you, Steve. That has really motivated us to get stuck into some church history. In our next episode, Kenny chats with Bev murrell senior leader of Christian Growth International and founder of the Courier Network for Women Leaders, about what the leadership landscape will look like in the future. Bev teaches transformational leadership at WTC, and the episode was recorded in between lectures at our residential in Nottingham. Theodisc is part of WTC, a theological college that seeks to partner with the church through equipping and sending the whole people of God. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programs without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk Thank you for listening to episode 8 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 9 with the wonderful Bev Morrell, leadership expert extraordinaire. Bye for now.